You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. 1 Kings 4, 20-34 Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had a peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let let nothing be lacking, barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than other, all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, Kalko, and Dada, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in uh, Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Coy. And good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you after these months. Uh, So great to be with you together in person, seeing people in three dimensions. Uh, It's amazing, isn't it? Like it's been great having the times that we've had on Zoom, but there's just nothing quite like actually being in person. I'm very thankful for this church, uh, All Saints Footscray. It's part of the parish of Footscray. There's two churches, two church buildings in Footscray. One's right in the heart of Footscray. Uh, And uh, so this church has been around for about 60 years as you can probably tell from some of the architecture. Uh, It's called All Saints, and I think you can see all the saints around the wall, uh, basically. But um, uh, So they actually have a service at 11 o'clock, so they're very great, uh, very generously uh, allows us to use it at 9am. So uh, they'll probably arrive here about 10.30. It's a very small church, it's about 20 people, um, but really great that they've been able to uh, offer this to us. All right, well, as Coy said, we're beginning this new series looking at the book of one Kings, and it's two Kings, really. We're kind of really just doing a flyover, looking at some of the key characters. But as we were thinking about this, it reminded me of Lord of the Rings. Now, I think it's always important to have a Lord of the Rings illustration. I know Paul McGregor loves it. Thumbs up there. But I often think of it because it's so epic, Lord of the Rings. And there's this one scene in the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, towards the end, where our heroes are floating down what's called the Great Great River, and they come to this place called Argonoth. It's basically this narrow canal, and on either side there's these two big sheer cliffs. And into the cliffs are carved the likenesses of the great kings, the great human kings, of Numenor, I think they're called. Is that right, Paul? Numenor? 
something like that. Anyway, uh, these great kings, and, and you get this sense of how epic this history has been, that these are the stories of great kings and their great deeds from the past. And I remember watching that movie and thinking, wow, that feels a bit like the book of one and two kings. And that's exactly, uh, as we start this series, I want us to, to think about the story of these kings, that these are people who lived, who really lived, and they, they existed in history, and their stories are so powerful, and they have lots of things for us to learn from. And it reminds us that the story of God's people spans thousands of years. And we're going to see in this series good kings and bad kings, uh, corrupt and evil kings and godly kings and so on. But as we jump into it, we actually find in this little passage probably the high point of all of the era of the kings. We're told that uh, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20, that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. This is probably the peak moment of God's people, the time where they're at their most powerful, their most prosperous, and their most impressive. This is a wonderful moment. And to understand just how important this is, uh, you need to know a little bit more about the history of God's people. Now, we probably know bits of it already, but really that history begins with Abraham. About a 1,000 years before the events of 1 Kings 4, God comes to this man, Abraham, and gives him a great promise. Genesis 12, verse 1, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the the promise that really frames the entire Old Testament and really the whole history of Israel. They are God's people. He's chosen to bless them. And more than that, he's going to work through them to bless the rest of the world. A few chapters later, God expands on this promise and says he's going to give them a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Now, how they actually get to that land is quite a journey. Uh, you, you hear the stories of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the time in Egypt and the exodus through Moses. But finally they get there and they take the land. But even when they take the land, they find themselves harassed by all the countries and the tribes around them. And so God raises up heroes to rescue them. We call them the judges, people like Samson and Gideon and Deborah and Jephthah and so on. And this continues, this period of the judges continues for about 300 years until we come to the book of 1 Samuel. Now, the book's named after the prophet Samuel, who's effectively leading God's people at this time. But the people are starting to get restless. Samuel's a very godly man. But his sons aren't. He installs his sons to, to help him lead the country, but they're corrupt and they take bribes and pervert justice. And so the people come to Samuel with a request. We want a king to judge us like all the nations, they say. And we're told that this displeased Samuel and that it actually displeased God as well, 1 Samuel 8. They have not rejected you, God says to Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, why is God upset about his people wanting a king? You see, actually, God had hinted thousand, a thousand years before to Abraham that he would give, that there would be kings in his line, that there would, one of his descendants would be a king. He told Moses that Israel would be a kingdom. In fact, the law that he gave to Moses has all of these laws related to, being, to the kings anticipating the time when there would be kings. So now, when they ask for a king, why is God upset about this? What's the problem? 
Well, the commentator Bill T. Arnold writes that it's true that Yahweh, or God, was not opposed to an Israelite monarchy. Rather, he was opposed to the kind of monarchy that Israel is now demanding. And then he says the reason that God's upset is that their request is sinful in its motives, selfish in its timing, and cowardly in its spirit. So first of all, it's sinful in its motives. Do, do you notice what they say? They say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations, like all the nations. See, this is a real slap in the face for God because he had always designed for his people to be different to all the other nations. He'd set his love on them, we're told. He'd chosen them as his treasured possession among all peoples. I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine, and now they're rejecting this. The very thing that God most wanted for them, to be different, is the very thing they don't want to have. They want to be just like everyone else. And so that's sinful in its motives. But it's also selfish in its timing. So God understands that they're not ready yet. The problem with Israel's demand, says Arnold, is not the fact that they want a king, but that they want a king now. And we're going to see this, that they're just not ready for this. And thirdly, it's cowardly in its spirit. See, ultimately, they lack the courage to trust God. See, during the time of the judges, uh, it was a little bit of a strange sort of system. They would have moments of crisis where a judge would suddenly emerge, this hero would come, but then the, the, the judge's son or daughter didn't follow on after them. There wasn't a succession. There wasn't a dynasty or anything like that. They'd just sort of uh, go along and then another time a crisis would come and God would raise up someone else. And it was sort of inconsistent. Now, clearly the Israelites aren't happy with that. They want something stable. They want to see that they've got a, a hero right in front of them all of the time. They want someone that they can depend on. They want a human that they can depend on. See, God had deliberately made it that way with the judges. He wanted his people to look to him, to depend on him for their rescue. He would allow them to have times of crisis so that he could provide them with the saviour. But now we see that the people, they want to trust in a human to always look after them. They want something reliable from humans. And there's something else here too. See, underneath all of this desire for security, this desire for safety and peace, it, they're actually missing something. They're missing the reason why they're insecure. See, when God took them to the promised land, he said to them, once you enter into here, I'm going to bless you and look after you. You won't have to fear any enemies, no other countries, if you follow me. If you obey my commandments... Everything will be peachy. But he also warned them, if you fail to obey me, if you stop listening to me, then you'll have something to fear. Your enemies will rise up. And so now as they feel their enemies coming against them, their only solution is, oh, we just need someone to protect us. But actually they're not dealing with the problem itself. They're kind of dealing with the symptoms rather than the disease. They're looking for a human king to defend them rather than turning back to their divine king in repentance and trusting him. So really, their request for a king is a big problem. But despite this, God says to Samuel, look, obey the voice of the people and give them a king, but make sure that you warn them about what it's going to be like. And so we read this in one, of, uh, in one Samuel. He warns the, pe the, the people that the kings will be selfish 
They'll take your sons as soldiers. They'll take your daughters as slaves. They'll take the best of the land for themselves. You'll do all of this work. They'll, they'll demand a tribute. They'll want a tax. In 1 Samuel 8, he says, In that day you'll cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And there's actually, if you remember when we studied Exodus, there's actually something similar in that language. God's people crying out under the oppression of some other king, but now it's their own king. That's what's going to happen. They'll take and you'll serve, as one writer summarises it. But despite all of these warnings, the people press ahead. There shall be a king over us, so we also may be like all the nations. And so the monarchy is birthed in this really strange environment. Yes, it's something that God is willing to give to his people, but they're going about it the wrong way. And at first it looks like God is going to effectively judge them because the first king he gives them is not so great. You'll have heard of him. Saul is his name and he's a fascinating character. He seems really impressive. He's very handsome. We're told there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He was a great warrior. 1 Samuel 14, he did valiantly. He delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. So he's an impressive guy, but he's also impetuous and rash and deeply insecure. At first, he's really scared to become king. And then as soon as he becomes king, he's scared of losing his kingship. And so he descends into this life of mad jealousy. And he's constantly worrying what the people will think of him more than he worries about what God thinks of him. And so ultimately, he loses it all. God comes and says to him in 1 Samuel 13, I would have established the kingdom for you forever, but because you haven't followed me, I'm going to tear it away from you and give it to someone else, to someone better. That someone better is a guy called David. Of course, we know him. We meet him when he's just a boy, a shepherd, looking after his father's sheep, the youngest son, the runt of the litter, unimpressive, unnoticed, overlooked, but he has a humble spirit and a brave heart. He fights the Philistine giant. Goliath rescues God's people, becomes a hero. And when he finally ascends to the throne, we see exactly what a king should be like. He's a person of character and nobility. We're told repeatedly that he is a man after God's own heart. He loves God, and we see that in the Psalms. He's constantly seeking God's wisdom. He writes half the Psalms, and they're just beautiful. And under his leadership, Israel prospers. 2 Samuel 8 says, David administered justice and equity to all his people. But, of course, we also know that he was flawed. You'll remember the story of David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba is someone else's wife. He sees her. He lusts after her sleeps with her, she falls pregnant to try and cover up his crime. He wants to take her as his wife, but to do that, he has to get rid of the husband, so he makes sure that he dies in battle. It's just a disgusting and disgraceful sin. Now, he does repent, and in Psalm 51, we see that repentance, and it's really very moving, and it really does show that he is truly a man after God's own heart, because even when he sins so drastically, He still comes back to God, and God blesses that. And yet after that, he always feels a bit diminished. As you follow the last phase of his kingship, he seems a bit distant, a bit disconnected. Strange things happen with his sons. He doesn't seem as engaged as he was before. And so when he dies, we're kind of left thinking, ah, 
It could have been so much better. He had so much potential. What happened there? But thankfully, God still has plans for the kingdom. You see, early on in David's reign, God made an incredible promise to David. It's in 2 Samuel 7. If you've got a Bible, have a squeeze at it. It's a really key passage in the Bible. 2 Samuel 7 verse 9, God says to him, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. It's an amazing promise. God is saying, right, I am going to bless this nation. I'm going to make sure that they're finally at peace. There's going to be a time where this land that they have, this promised land, will never be threatened. They'll be safe and secure. And he's going to do all of this through David. Verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house or a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David saying, uh, God's saying to David, I am going to bless you. There's going to be someone in your line, one of your descendants, who's going to have this incredible kingdom. Now, with all of that background, that big epic story, come back with me to 1 Kings 4, to that passage on the sheet. When you read it, doesn't it sound like those promises are already being fulfilled? A son of David has emerged to take the throne and under him God's people are prospering. They've grown. There's this great multitude. Verse 20, there are as many as the sand by the sea. They have this vast and beautiful land. Verse 24, Solomon had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates. And they're safe and secure in that land. Verse 24, he had peace on all sides around him and Judah and Israel lived in safety, the very thing that they've most wanted. David was this great warrior, Saul was as well. Solomon never has to be a warrior. And they're enjoying this land. Verse 20, they ate and drank and were happy. And we know that this is actually just the beginning. If you read on with the story of Solomon, you'll know about his greatness and his prosperity and how God blesses the people through him. Uh, Solomon builds a temple so that God can dwell among his people permanently. God says of it, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. This is a guarantee of God's presence. And then Solomon builds this magnificent palace. We get some sense of it in verse 22, the household supplies. Some people reckon that there's enough supplies here to provide for, for, for meals for maybe 20,000 people. Like it's a small city. That's what he had. But that's the kind of prosperity that they're enjoying. And in the middle of this is Solomon himself. Verse 23 of chapter 10, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. We're actually told that in Solomon's day, all the drinking vessels were of gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. It's like, you know how you have the, the nicest silver that you bring out for your best guests? In Solomon's day, that didn't even matter. That was just like a paper cup. They had gold everywhere. And he is this man of extraordinary wisdom. 
Verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. His people respect him. Chapter 3, we're told that they stand in awe of him because they perceived that the, the wisdom of God was in him. And then people come from across the nations, verse 34, to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So it all seems just so perfect. It feels like the promises to Abraham are being fulfilled. Here is this great person in Israel. All the nations are streaming to him to learn from him, to be blessed. He, he is a blessing to all the nations. Israel are a blessing to everyone. And it feels like God's promise to David has been fulfilled too. Here's a son of David, ruling in power, and his people are safe. In fact, there's this wonderful little moment in 1 Kings 8 where they have the opening ceremony for the temple and everyone walks away and they say, the people blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. Surely then the throne of his kingdom will be established forever. Except you'll remember how I started this sermon. I said that this was the peak of the monarchy, that this was the moment when Israel was at its most powerful, its most prosperous and its most impressive because it goes downhill from this moment on. We'll see that in the rest of this series. Next week we'll see that the nation splits in two. Ultimately we'll see that the kings, the whole nation is carried off into exile and to captivity. All of this stuff is to come and it actually starts with Solomon himself. See, as we read on, we see Solomon's sin. Uh, in Moses' law, when it talked about the kings, it said this in Deuteronomy 17, the king must, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. That was the warning, the command that God gave for the future kings, and it's something that Solomon completely forgot. So there's hints of it here, even in this passage. We're told in verse 26 that he has this great team of horses, 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. This was against God's instructions, Deuteronomy 17. He must not acquire many horses for himself. And then we have this temple and the palace, and they're so impressive, they're so grand, but there's something a little bit off. It takes him seven years to build the temple but 13 to build his palace. It's almost like he, he's looking after, he's making this beautiful house for God, but an even better one for himself. And to make these houses, he has to uh, conscript people for forced labour and slavery, just as Samuel warned that the kings would do. And then there's his wives. We're told that Solomon ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. And these people, these women turned his heart away from God. We're told that he clung to these in love, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And so ultimately, God must step in. 1 Kings 11, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, and he says to him, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. The same kind of words that he'd said to Saul. 
There is a stay of execution. He says, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. We'll see that next week. And so whereas David received this promise of a great legacy, a great dynasty, Solomon receives a promise of fracture and brokenness. And so what had looked so wonderful, so glorious, ends tarnished. So what happened? How did it happen? What went wrong and what can we learn from it? See, throughout this series, I want us to not just learn the history of the kings, but to learn from that history as God's people, as individuals, as a collective. What can we learn? And I want to suggest today that there's lessons about trust. Three lessons. One's Super practical. The others are, are larger themes that really dominate the whole book. But the first one is this. Don't trust yourself. Or in other words, when you feel strong, don't forget where that strength comes from. See, it's amazing how often something will look incredibly impressive and strong and then suddenly crumble. You see it with countries. At the start of the 20th century, they used to say that the sun never set on the British Empire. There's two meanings to it. One of them was a literal one. The empire was so big, so broad, that wherever you went in the world, you'd be part of, there would be daytime somewhere in the British Empire. But of course, it had another meaning too. It was so powerful, so impregnable, that people couldn't imagine a time where it wouldn't be the greatest nation. And yet within a few decades, it had lost all its colonies, or most of them And it's like that with every great empire, the Roman Empire, the Greeks, the Mongols. People will say it about the Americans in time. And often it happens quickly. Something can seem so powerful and then suddenly lose its place. It can happen with cities. Just a few years ago, we were the world's most livable city. I don't know that many of us would say that now. And it can happen with churches too. About 10 years ago, I visited a church in America called Mars Hill. It was in Seattle, Seattle, and I was under the leadership of a bloke called Mark Driscoll. And it was an extraordinary church. This church was just thriving, growing, multiplying. It was an incredible journey. And, And I remember sitting down with one of their key leaders, and they were talking about their future and their vision. And I just thought, wow, but the only way that this won't happen is if they stuff this up. And it turned out they already were stuffing it up. Behind the scenes, there was this toxic culture of bullying and oppression and so on. And within four years, the church had completely gone. I mean, there's a whole podcast just about the decline of this church. What happened? They lost sight of where their strengths came from. So how does this happen? And how do we avoid it happening to us? We must remember where our strength comes from, and honour God rather than seek the glory for ourselves. See, I think Israel and Solomon in particular got self-satisfied and self-reliant. Sorry, am I doing something wrong here? Sounds like when you had those text messages in the year 2000. (laughs) Um, See, I think Solomon forgot where his wisdom and his greatness came from. Have you ever heard the story of how Solomon got his wisdom? It's a beautiful story. 1 Kings 3, the Lord appears to him by night and says, what can I give you? And Solomon says, oh, 
I'm so overwhelmed by the task of leading your people. Please give me wisdom and understanding. And so God says, yes, I'll give you that. I'll make you the wisest person who's ever lived. In fact, I'll even throw in some riches. All of this stuff is given to Solomon because he asks for it, because he's humble. But then he loses that humility. And you can see how it could happen. There's people flowing from across the world to, to almost worship at his feet. There's this amazing moment uh, where the Queen of Sheba comes and visits him and we're told that as she sees the temple and the palace and his riches and all the people around him, there's no breath left in her. <laughs> it's breathtaking to imagine how great this guy is. Can you imagine how good Solomon felt when she said that and how easy it would have been to just take that as his own merits? his own power, his own greatness. So we must learn from that, to not be like that. See, our strongest moments are actually some of our most vulnerable. When we feel at our best, we might think, oh, I'm, I can handle that temptation. I can do this, I can do that. I've got this great ability, so I'll just use this and I'll, I'll forget about the God who's given it to me. So I love how the Apostle Peter talks about it. 1 Peter 4 verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See what he says here? Every great thing that you have is a gift. It's from God. And so use it as a steward of God's grace. Do it in the strength that he supplies and ultimately for his glory because he's the one who deserves it. I love Ephesians 2 says that we are God's workmanship. That's a great way to remain humble, to remember that all that we have that's great is from the great God. So we must learn not to trust ourselves. And secondly, we must... Learn not to trust in flawed humans. This is really one of the big lessons of this series. We're going to see great kings, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, and yet they're all flawed. And it's a reminder that we can't trust in flawed humanity. Or as Psalm 146 says, put not your trust in princes. Why? Because there is son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. See, humans can't provide us with the perfection and the salvation that we're looking for. And yet we constantly put our trust in humanity, don't we? We do it in politics. We see the culture around us and we think, we need someone to rescue us. Doesn't matter which side of politics you're on, you'll look to a human leader for that salvation. I remember the rhetoric around Barack Obama when he came into power. He's the guy who will save the world. And then on the other side of politics, when Trump comes along, he's the man who will make America great again. This is our hero. We all fall into this trap. And we can do it with, in churches as well. How many of us looked at a man like Ravi Zacharias and thought, here is a guy who can answer the toughest questions. Here is a guy who's on the front lines for us, putting forward our case then we find out sordid details about his life. Do not put your trust in princes. Instead, we trust God. 146 verse 5, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. 
That's who you can trust, the one who keeps faith forever. So don't trust in flawed humans. And then thirdly, finally, trust in the true king, the great king, the best king, the king of kings. See, the promise to David would be fulfilled, but not for a long time. God's people would lose that land. They'd be exiled. But in the midst of everything falling apart, they get this incredible promise from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 9, he speaks to those who are in darkness. There's a great light that has shone. And then he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is reaffirming his promise to David. And we know who he's talking about. We sing about it. We know he's talking about Jesus. And yet the way that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy was so surprising. When he came, he looked like the very opposite of the kind of king God's people were looking for. You read 1 Kings 4 and you see what you imagine the king will look like. You look at Solomon and then you compare it to Jesus and it seems so different. Solomon had this great palace. Jesus was born in a stable. He grew up in a humble carpenter's home. Later on, he would say that he had nowhere. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Solomon was fated and honoured. Jesus was despised and rejected by men. Solomon was praised for his wisdom. Jesus was dismissed as a fool, as someone possessed by demons. But of course, the kingdom that Jesus was coming to bring wasn't this grand, glorious, physical kingdom here, but a spiritual kingdom. And in all the most important ways, Jesus was different to Solomon as well. Solomon's heart turned away from God, but Jesus stayed true. He did the Father's will, even when it seemed impossible. Ultimately, where Solomon took, Jesus gave. He gave his life to make us truly safe, to give us the peace that we truly need. You see, Jesus came to heal and end the war between God and humanity. So we all want to go our own way. We all have that Solomon within us. We all are like Israel. We want to be like everyone else. But we're called to be different. It doesn't work when we pursue our own desires, when we make ourselves king, when we seek the kingdom of another human. Ultimately, we need to submit to the rule of God. And Jesus came to heal that conflict, to make up for the way that we walk away from him. And he did it at the cross. Colossians 1, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus was greater than Solomon. But in Philippians 2, we're told that he made himself nothing. Why ultimately? So that we can be something. 
we can be the forgiven, accepted children of God if we turn to him, if we bend our knee to him. And so God has exalted him. God has exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So have you acknowledged him as Lord and King? Have you bent your knee? There will be a time when all of us will, but we can do it now too. That's the best time to do it. And there's this wonderful picture in Revelation 7. We have this story of Solomon drawing people from all across the world to marvel at his greatness. Jesus comes in obscurity and smallness, but we're told in Revelation 7 that there will be a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. People from every place will stream towards Jesus, not to marvel at his wealth or his power, but to marvel at his work on the cross, to marvel at the Lamb who was slain for us, who deserves all glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the story of Solomon. We thank you for what we learn about our need to follow you to not trust in ourselves, to not trust in flawed humanity, but to trust in you, the great king, the one true king who did all things. Lord, thank you for making yourself nothing so that we could be made something, your children, loved and accepted. Help us to bend our knee to you once and every day, once and always help us to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.